correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, a podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Hey folks, welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPGs. I'm Steve, and uh, the other Steve, unfortunately, is absent this week because he's feeling a bit under the weather. But we have a guest, and so uh, you'll still get some wonderful RPG conversation. But before we get to that, let me tell you about our D20 Network Spotlight this week, and that is the Genesis Archive, which is, it's an actual play podcast, but it's where a bunch of self-described nerds, artists, writers, and musicians collaboratively create stories through a tabletop role-playing game called Genesis. And the setting they've been playing in is one of their own creation called The Unseen World, which is, um, it's a somewhat historical urban fantasy set in Las Vegas. Let's put it that way. And a very, very good show. So uh, check them out. You can find them at anchor.fm slash the Genesis Archive, or there'll be a link in the show notes. So that being said, a couple of weeks ago, if you all remember, I mentioned a game in our Game of the Week segment called Pandora Total Destruction, which is this kind of interesting little post-apocalyptic supers game. Well, day or two after it airs, I get an email this from the creator. And they were like, well, hey. I'd love to come talk about this game if you want to, but thanks for mentioning it. So uh, anyway, by that, welcome, please, uh, Todd Crapper, the author of Pandora Total Destruction. Thanks for having me. It was actually because uh, my name was actually mentioned twice on that episode. And so very much like, you know, with Halloween coming up, that spooky thing where you stand in front of a mirror and you say someone's name three times with candles lit all around and suddenly they appear well, this is now the third time my name's been mentioned, and so here I am. <laughs> Aha. Well, hey, you know, if it works, it works, right? Exactly. And and truth be told, Doug, who we were talking to on that episode, we were talking about GURPS, mentioned that you had done some layout work for him or, or taught him some layout tricks or I, something like that, and I had already picked out the game that I was going to use, but he didn't know that. So... Yeah, it was a nice little coincidence, actually. And even then, too, when I heard, uh, like, when I noticed that it was Doug, because I was doing a web search just for Pandora, because that's what you do when you make a game. You do those desperate Google searches to try and see if anyone else is talking about your game. And then I noticed (laughs) Doug's name as as the interviewee. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I haven't spoken with him for a while because Doug was actually my first freelance client, like my first legit one where it wasn't a favor for someone else that knew or that. It was like my first paid gig and opened up quite a few doors from there. So and that was really cool that, you know, um, that he that he gave a mention and a shout out like that. So that was really sweet. Yeah. And like I said, I had just found, you know, the listing and went, oh, this looks interesting. And I've never just because. I just wasn't into comic books or whatever. So I don't have like the attachment to the, you know, bright color spandex superheroes that a lot of people do. Like I enjoy a lot of the, like the MCU movies and whatnot, but it's, it's not, you know, I don't have that nostalgia factor that a lot of people do, but I like when I see games that go, let's take this thing and wonder, well, what if, and kind of go around a corner with it. And that appears to be kind of the premise behind your game. 
It is actually, yeah. And even then too, what's so unusual about it is that how the game ended up wasn't necessarily what I began with. And it also wasn't necessarily what I ended up kickstarting. It was this very odd progression of, I guess, a seeming kind of random series of events that just happened to kind of interject and, and intersect itself into the game in so many ways. And so it basically came down to is like the, the finished result of what exists today. It, it's not something that if you had told me three or four years ago that I was going to make this game, I would have asked so many questions. I'm just like, well, what makes you think that? Because everything else I worked on beforehand was very kind of open world, very much how like a lot of RPGs were in kind of my early days. They were meant more to kind of simulate how the physics and everything of this of this world works. The idea is that an RPG system can do the correct, so to speak. And even too, when it came to D&D, we were using it for so many different things. And so that's where I came from. For me, my initial designs were, you know, like something that could handle a lot of everything. And Pandora is way more focused. Um, and it was, I'm very pleasantly surprised. I, I do have to say it's actually my most favorite thing that I've made, but at the same time too, with kind of like a bit of a tear comes down the side of my face because of what I went through in trying to get there. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, I'm a, um, if you will call it a palladium refugee. So I understand what you're you know, referencing to some of the earlier design styles, you know, and, and yeah, like I was, I was a little curious, you know, and we can get into some of that uh, as we go on, but before I suppose we, we dance around it, any longer do you want to give kind of a overview pitch as, as to the what this game is because i mean anybody can go and read the listing on drive through you know probably on your website whatever but it's always fun to hear the author's descriptions sure yeah the, the other pitch for pandora total destruction uh is that it's a tabletop rpg about overpowered supers struggling to control their powers in order to stop a great evil and the overall concept is is that your supers, which is a generic term for anyone that has uh, a power that goes beyond normal human ability. And the idea is that you have a power that is incredibly destructive. You have very little ability to control it. And so as a result, you're sent off to a, a place that's known as a Pandora Academy. That is specifically, it is an institution that these people are forced to go to because they are considered to be far too dangerous within society to exist without some form of training. And, and in course of it, while you're learning to control your power, because at the very beginning, uh, it's very destructive. Collateral damage is not only kind of a narrative aspect of the game, but it's also a mechanical aspect. That when you first start off and use your power to do anything, you will almost always cause collateral damage in some way, shape, or form. As the story continues, as the game proceeds, and you do more and more training, you get more and more control over it, but at the same time, you start to uncover that there's something going on at this academy. Not everything is what it appears to be. Someone is working nefariously behind the curtain, and there's basically there is a villain out there who has a master plan that involves the academy, possibly one of the students in particular, or just because of their history with the academy in general. So it's a, kind of a hybrid supers RPG slash mystery game all jumbled in together. But the overall concept is that you are playing a super that has one power. It is incredibly destructive. 
and you are forced to attend this institution with other people who are just as dangerous as you. So you could think of it as being a very X-Men-based uh, scenario, but something where the stakes are much, much higher. Uh, you're not going to Xavier School for the Gifted. This isn't a friendly, happy place. This is a place that you are forced to go into. Some of them are private institutions. Some are run by corporations. Others are outright prisons. And the academy that you attend is as much a part of the game as the other characters. In fact, everybody uh, who plays the game helps to establish the parameters of the academy. Who founded it? You know, what kind of an institution? Where is it located? You know, and also to what are some of the systemic failures? What are some of the built-in ways that this place is never going to get it right? Where it's never going to be perfect. There's always something wrong. It, there's never enough funding. The people that they hire aren't qualified. Um, you know, any kind of number of reasons. And so, you know, the Academy is as much a character of the game as the, you know, the supers who are trying to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you've borrowed, at least in principle, from stuff like um, kids on bikes and stuff as far as like kind of creating the schools. Or is it a little more mechanical than their, their very free form? Yeah, it's a little more mechanical. Yeah, I've never really gone into to kids and bikes uh, too much, but it's um, it, the the reason for it. It wasn't so much of just like, oh, that was really cool. I like what others were doing. It was more about as the the game began to develop more and more, and as time went on, um, and I started to realize that what this game was doing was basically very similar to things that have happened in the real world. So if you look at what has happened with indigenous people over the last couple hundred years in North America, residential schools, that's a, you know, something help here in Canada, which is where I'm from, that we have really been smacked across the face with it after decades and decades of turning a blind eye. And also too, there's, there's other people, there's people all over the world that had in some way, shape or form at some point in time in modern history have had to put up with forced institutionalization. And so once I started to realize that I was really leaning onto some real world dark issues and wanted to keep going with it, having the academy built the way that it's built in the game, it's actually kind of a safety tool. And it's, it's like a built in safety tool because you're establishing parameters of where do you want to go with this? How dark do you want to take this? Do you even want to go dark with it? And where do you not want to go? And then in doing so, it gives everybody a sense of player agency so that you can take the idea of a super game and start to explore some of the more kind of, I guess, real world ramifications of what if there were actually people like this around? Like, there's no way we would let this slide and cheer what some guy in tights all of a sudden comes flying down with a cape flapping behind him. You know, we'd be freaking out. You know, we'd really be freaking out and asking a lot of questions about, like, how are we just going to allow this to happen, you know? And that's where it's like I wanted the game to have that flexibility, and that's where the academies come into play. And that's that's why they're built that way. It's it's like part player agency, part safety tool, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, I think also, you know, in addition to those factors, just from a design perspective, you know, the agency also creates engagement you know, as, as a player, you're going to be more invested if you helped create the world you're playing in. 
you know, at least that's been always been my experience, yeah. you know, either as a player or GMing is if I suggest something and the GM takes it and runs with it, you know, I feel more invested and I've seen that reaction from players as well. You know, when you run with their idea, they think that's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it, and it's one of the things that Pandora is very much like a writer's table game. While there is a GM and, you know, as someone who basically kind of portrays the different aspects of the world, the setting, the NPCs, that kind of stuff, they, they play the faculty members uh, who are at this academy. And most of it will take place at the academy. There is an outside world, but these characters are mostly locked away from that most of the time. But there could be glimpses, like on the TV, you'll see stories about, you know, how the world is still going on out there or, you know, just how messy things are starting to get, you know, um, kind of like the, the fear mongering and everything that might exist out there. Or it could be something where you turn on the TV and you do see supers who are dressed in costumes and being praised and applauded. You know, they might be government sanctioned, you know, kind of if you do the whole uh, Marvel Comics Civil War kind of thing, that could exist in the game. And so you, there's this outside world that the GM still represents and then presents to the players. But yeah, by having everybody invested in this one very specific location where it's all going to take place, it gives everybody the opportunity to to basically, you know, kind of say like, you know what? What if there was like this lab, like a lab that was actually hidden underneath the gymnasium? Let's find that in this scene. And then, you know, like there could be some clues in there and everything like that. And yeah, you're right. That level of investment, when you know that you can go ahead and push the boundaries and the game not only encourages it, but supports it, it really helps everyone kind of feel comfortable to say it's like, you know what I think would be real cool is if it turns out there's a secret panel back here and behind the panel is this, this and that you know, nuclear launch codes. What is this doing here? You know, it, it really, it's it, every time I play this, what, like a lot of games that I make nowadays as a GM, I really don't want to do a lot of legwork. For me, GMing is I am facilitating the story created by everybody at this table. I'm there to make sure that it keeps flowing and that we're not going to break it. It's like, oh, that idea, oh, you know what? There's a risk. That, that's a little too much. Let's pull that back or let's keep us focused in this way rather than like to come up with this. I need to come up with a reason why this is happening and these people need innovation. And then I need to come up with stats for a car. You know, none of that. I'd rather just kind of be one of the players. It's just that my job as a GM is to portray how the world reacts to the main characters. Mm-hmm. You're sort of leading the game as opposed to, to really, well, not even leading so much as if, uh, the only analogy that comes to mind is a quilt, right? And where you're sewing the pieces that your players bring together. Yes. I don't know if that makes any sense. But... I like that analogy. It is, I like that analogy a lot, actually. In fact, I might steal it. <laughs> if you haven't copyrighted <laughs> it, I'm totally going to borrow that. Because, no, you're right. It, it's, it's the idea. It, it's community storytelling. I remember back to uh, when I really first started trying to quantify this approach to jamming was like, you know, it's how I like running it. How do I start building that into games, put it in there concretely? And I remember going back to reading the first of Vampire the Masquerade. And it's really part of the book I remember the most. And it's the introduction by uh, Mark Reinhagen, where he basically talked about the history of storytelling in human society 
And this is just an evolution of that. This is just a new form of storytelling. And that idea of mm-hmm. role-playing games being storytelling and not just dungeon crawling, not just adventuring, it was, it, that part has really stuck with me. Even if I, you know, use completely different approaches for doing it, I still look at that. And in fact, even too, in Pandora, the, the campaign, so to speak, is the story. And everything is about the story. In fact, in the game, uh, I use the, a technical term of basically triggered by the narrative. The mechanics are in the game to be used when triggered by the narrative. And the GM's job is to say, what you said, that's going to trigger an action rule. Let's see some dice hit the table and let's see how that turns out. And if not, you just continue to tell the story. Um, so it's very kind of powered by the apocalypse in that sense where... The mechanics are only supposed to kick into effect when there's something offered in the narrative at the table. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, I think that's, that's a, a nice design concept. And I think like you hit on something though, in that in the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years, RPGs have kind of splintered and, and moved where you still have the, the D and D or uh, let's put it this way, the way a lot of people play D and D where it's kill monster, get loot, get XP, get bigger, rinse, repeat. And then you have the, let's tell a story and let's not worry about the details as much. And it, it, it it's really kind of an interesting separation. And I, I wonder if some of that hasn't evolved kind of parallel with the rise of video games being so much better, you know, so much more graphically, whatever, where you can get that, you know, that, that, kill things, get their loot, fix that way. And so RPGs are tending more to the preform story because even with the advances in, in computer technology, you can't, you can't do in a video game what you can do at the tabletop. Yes, correct. I know I used to think that there were distinct differences, that it was like video games are one thing, tabletop role-playing games are another thing. And in fact, even to the idea of having to call them tabletop role-playing games was like, no. They're role-playing games. That over there is a video game, and it's different. It's trying to be a role-playing game. But I've, I've since started to see, uh, and especially too because my son, I have a seven-year-old son who's very big into video games, and he could care less about the tabletop games, <laughs> really, in a nutshell. He is aware of them, and he knows that I work on them for a living. But otherwise, meh, you do your thing, Daddy. Um, and so now I'm starting to see it more of like, well, since we're rocking the analogies, let me try and and top the quilt one. Um, it's almost like if you look at a soundboard, if the entire gaming industry is a soundboard and there's all these dials, knobs and everything like that, we're all playing with the same board, but what we're doing is we're different settings to different things. And so, you know, cause I, I've had some people, um, you know, particularly, um, there's the, the gaming and BS, uh, podcast when it was on, they had a forum and we used to have these really great in-depth conversations about some of this stuff. And there were quite a few OSR GMs and players and everything like that who really kind of took offense to the idea of just like, oh, dungeon crawling is not storytelling. And they're like, no, you can totally tell a story with that. The dungeon is the story. It's just, we're just playing with different settings on the dials than other ones. You know, like you're not going to have the soundboard set the same thing for hip hop as you are for country music or as it is for opera, but they're all music. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things I I think really in an essence, what it was is that 
in the last 10 to 15 years, we just started playing with more settings. You know, we found out, ooh, there's an echo effect over here. And, you know, and if we actually do this and we get in like egg cartons and we, you know, we make weird shapes with it, we can do a different effect with it. And now as a result, we're just really kind of leaning harder into these different subgenres of gaming that do different things when it comes to the story. Whereas in some cases, it's just like murder, death, kill. All things must die. Go, go, go. And then in other ones, it's more so about we want to know how your character feels at this moment. You know, that's like, that's fine. In one game, your character's, you know, family were, you know, slaughtered by whatever insert monstrous creature here. And in this, now I'm going out to get revenge. Easy enough. Very action movie style. And then we have other ones where the game is all about you know recovering from that trauma you're playing a character who went and got revenge and still feels empty how do you feel about that so we're just playing with different settings and now we're quantifying them what i the ones that i find really interesting nowadays are the ones that blur that line where mm. you're playing something where you're getting like you know games like mothership which i've yet to try and i'm, I'm trying to find a gm who will run it for me but games ah, like that with the idea of just like yeah go ahead Mothership, I I didn't back the Kickstarter only because there were like four other Kickstarters going on that I wanted just a little bit more because like that was the same time Cyborg was out and a couple of other ones and I'm going oh but I want oh but I, there's just not enough money to go around damn it yeah but Mothership yeah it and that's the other well that's that's the other issue with it is now there's so much out there and there's so much interesting stuff that's being put out there that fulfill different needs you know it's like we all just don't watch one genre of movie we try and mix it up a little bit and even then too you know like some of our favorite seven with star wars now there's an espionage uh series that's out there you know that is very different from the original skywalker saga mm -hmm. so and then that becomes the problem is successful media breeds over success in so many ways you know like the, now there's too many damn streaming options that we can't all subscribe to everything so we're trying to mm -hmm. make the most of the stuff that we do get and yeah that's that's kind of the that's a bit of a risk of this explosion in rps is there's too much that it's so easy to be left behind and it does actually create a risk of a much harder divide you know, the way, you know, there's always been kind of like old school versus story games, kind of stuff like this. There's a risk of it becoming old school brick wall story games, you know, where it's just like, no, you don't, you don't hop to the other side of the wall. You stay on your side of the wall. You've, you've made your choice. That's the one thing that I kind of worry about myself as someone who worries too much about things. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm a chronic overthinker myself. But there, it's interesting, though, that there is a definite faction, if you want to call it that, in that OSR scene that is very much fiction first, even though they have a much more mechanical rule set. You know, it's it's like, yes, we have these rules, but we're we're only using the rules to get through our fiction, not, you know, we're not the, the murder, death, kill hobos of old. And I find that kind of interesting that you have that and yet they in some cases seem to be hesitant on the very narrative based games even though they're playing more rules minimal 
I don't know. You know, I, I think you understand what I'm saying. I'm just not saying it well. Yeah, I think it's, and I, and I agree with you. And I think some of it too is because some of the quote unquote story games um, that are out there, some of them, it's almost like when you're first trying to convince someone, it's just like, oh, you have to start watching foreign language films. Some of them are so magnificent. And it's just like, well, give me an example. Well, there's this one. It's called, and it's all about two cousins who fall in love with each other. And it's just like, whoa, hold on a sec. Can we start with, I hear that they're good French action films. Let's start with that and we'll work our way into the Kissing Cousins movie. So I, I think there's some <laughs> of that where it's, you know, some of the some of the ones that are spotlighted because they are really excellent examples of what you can do with subgenre of gaming. I get some, they become the focus and it's just like, no, that's about kissing cousins. I'm not interested in watching movies about kissing cousins. I want to see movies. I want to see something about a bank heist uh, in space. That's where, where, where do I get to play that one? Oh, it's over here. Done. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, I, it is kind of the risk of it, but it, what's nice is, is that you seem to see a lot of people willing to try stuff out. And I think some of it comes down to, like I said, you know, like with, with the games like Mothership and Work Work and stuff, they've taken that OSR approach and they've used it to create something that's very story gaming. It's very focused on what it does, but incredibly open-ended enough that you can do a bunch of stuff with it while still leaning on this very particular narrative direction. And that's what's really interesting about some of the stuff you're seeing nowadays. I think we're starting to see a lot more hybrids. We're getting a lot more hip-hop mixed with country uh, and i use those two examples because normally people into hip-hop might not be into country and vice versa and now we're hearing something interesting that says you know what maybe i will go listen to some country music i'm gonna like what i'm hearing here mm -hmm. yeah well you're talking about those hybrid i'm actually well as we speak i'm going to be running it this weekend by the time this airs i'll have already done so i'm running an indie game at a local con called Hellmite, which is I would call it an OSR style design, but it is 80s doom biker heavy metal shenanigans, basically. You know, it's it's a Rob Zombie right. Rob Zombie video made into an RPG. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's it's from this little independent designer, Gabriel Caroga, who's from Argentina. And there are dice rules in it, but even his other work that I've read, um, because he's got a couple other games out, Warpland and uh, one called Nero City. And it's very much, yes, there's a game system, but it's all about the setting and the attitude and doing things with that attitude in the game. You know, where, yeah, there's some rules here, but really, we're just going to tell a really cool, badass demon biker story, and we've got some dice rolls so that we can't predict exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, you know, the having a more international view in RPGs is also expanding things out because now we're really starting to get, a, just beginning to get a look at, you know, how creators in other parts of the world see the genres that we have been taking for granted for so long. And now we're getting something where, in some cases, you get something where it's like, oh, I love that show, Sons of Anarchy, but where can we do something? Where can I get that and my Shadow of the Demon Lord fix at the same time? You know, And then, bam, and sure enough, someone's probably made something like that. It's just a matter of how they made it and how that gels with how you like to play. 
And that's, you know, so once again, like, you know, it's this, the doors are becoming more and more open. And it's up to us, I think, as the consumers to not, you know, try and pin ourselves down to one thing and just savor this for as long as it lasts. Because you and I were both uh, around uh, during the 2000s. Um, we know this balloon will burst. It's only a matter of time. Let's make the most of it. Let's keep drinking until the bar closes. You know what I mean? Well, that's the other beautiful thing about tabletop games, right? You buy them, then you have them, and you can play them forever. <laughs> you yeah. know, like... Un until something else shinier comes along. <laughs> well, but you could always go back to it. You know, mm. like, I mean, I have a whole bunch of Cyberpunk 2020 sitting in a drawer by my knee. I have Cyberpunk Red, too. But sometimes I might want to go back to Cyberpunk 2020, because it's just a little bit different. You yeah. know, but yes... So where are you at? It sounds like you've kind of evolved based on your earlier comments from where you used to be a little more of a, a crunchy simulationist type designer to where now you've kind of bled more into the, the narrative story type design. Is that accurate or is that just where this game wanted to go? And so that's where you took it. I think it's where this game wanted to go and that's where I took it. But I mean, it's also at the same time to... I'm looking to do it again, but not exclusively. I, I like to try and I, I like the idea of always challenging myself to not be pinned down to one particular style of game, one particular approach of design, or even the same system. A lot of times I like to design my own stuff from scratch, but then there's other times too where it's just like, oh, I want to take that one and I want to hack it and I want to do something with that. So for me, it's now just oh, that's another option. It's, you know, I, I've got my little workroom here and I've now I've got a new window that I could look out. And now I've got a, a, a different view. And sometimes maybe I want to look out this window and try and, and explore out this way. Um, but then other times I want to go back to stuff I've done before. So with another option, I think that's available for me now. It, it scratches a different kind of itch that maybe is because I'm I'm starting to get older and it's kind of like, you know, I have like, I've been going back and trying to watch a lot of movies I used to, like action movies in particular, I used to love from the 80s. They're not working for me as much anymore. <laughs> and I think because I got so spoiled in some other ways, where, like watching an action movie in the 80s, it's just like, that's a stunt guy. That's a stunt man. That's a stunt man. That's a stunt man. Anything with Bruce Willis, you never see Bruce Willis even throw a punch. It's always the back of the character's head. You know, like he doesn't do, he doesn't seem to do any of his own stunts two movies nowadays where it's like you know the actor who gives the dialogue is also an incredibly accomplished martial artist and so you are seeing them do their own stunts so i think it's kind of one of these ways where i just like to to keep my options open and not be pinned down which, which you know from a professional level makes it harder for people to know what to expect from you because sometimes you do something that's incredibly you know a deep you know like an analysis of this character's history and everything like that and in other cases it's like you're a bunch of characters and all you have are bazookas there's the castle go so it it does make it a little tricky that people don't know what to expect yeah but that's kind of half the fun of it too though right like because i think i find myself lately a lot of the games or i should say maybe a lot of the story concepts i've brought to four games are kind of what if scenarios and i feel like that's exactly where pandora total destruction hits it's it's well what if and then we start taking these ideas to their logical conclusion 
and then see what happens when we shake that tree. And I don't know, I guess for me, it's kind of a, you know, like a, a self-exploration thing in a sense of like, well, where, you know, where does this take us if we say, okay, this happened. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's just a way of looking at things, but I, I like the idea that, so to speak, where I might come up with a, a campaign concept based around that you've taken that and built a game setting out of it, you know, where, yeah, what if people suddenly develop powers and then something goes wrong? You know, how, how does the world react to that? You know, and, and I'm sure this is a game and okay, look, it's October. We're, we're talking about darker, grittier games, whatever. This game can go extremely dark and gritty if that's the way the table wants to take it. You know, I mean, yeah. heavens, your, your kickoff event listed in your listing, 61,000 some odd people die. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, it's not yeah. lily white superheroes, but at the same point, you're, you're saying, you know, you're hinting at there are things more dastardly behind these institutions possibly. Yeah. And that was something that developed after the initial concept for Pandora. There are a few events because I've, I've hit my head way too many times that I can remember in great detail, but I do remember this one detail very specifically. I was at uh, Breakout Con, which is a gaming convention in Toronto, having breakfast with a bunch of people. We started talking about MCU, you know, movies and stuff like this. It was uh, before Infinity War came out, so there was all this speculation and everything about what it was going to be and what was going to happen. And it, we just started talking about superpowers and stuff, and I just started going on this rant about, like, you know what really bugs me are, like, the training sequences for this. Or, in fact, in most other kind of fantasy or sci-fi or something like that. You know, like, especially in Star Wars, you know, like, oh, how do you use the Force? You know, like, focus your mind. It's like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> then then they just do it somehow. You get, like, the, the worst coaching ever. And yet, somehow, these characters are able to learn how to shoot a laser out of their eye, you know? Where's <laughs> the human reflex in that? You know, like, how how do you... If, if you found out that you had the ability to cause people to spontaneously combust just by thinking about it how do you not constantly think about it and that's it so the idea came more i like it more so out of kind of like a out of like a spite to the you know to just be like no i want to come up with something where you have to learn how to use your power as you play and so it became basically kind of like this this kind of fun little it, it was the whole idea of taking the super genre spinning on its head where you're not playing highly competent characters with these destructive powers. You're playing very highly incompetent characters with very dangerous powers, and you have to learn to use them. The grim part came after I kickstarted it, and, and even then only a couple months after. Um, and that was when uh, mass graves were found uh, up here in Canada at former residential schools. Uh, and within a matter of a week, it became a couple thousand. And so that that's up here in Canada. It became a very stark realization of something that people have been trying to, you know, make the public aware about. But we were all just like, yeah, 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 and just shrugging it off. And now all of a sudden, that was the thing that did it. And I quickly, not so much discovered, but then suddenly remembered myself that I had a, a great uncle who used to work at the. Uh, Ministry of Indian Affairs, as it was unfortunately called back then. And I started doing a, I did some Google searching while at work. 
within five minutes, I found out that that same great uncle was actually the signatory on several letters that are referenced by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Basically, letters that he wrote and were written to him submitted as evidence to the events that happened. Now, this is not saying that he was directly involved signing like death warrants or some kind of thing like this, but it's like, I have a family heritage that's a part of this system. Not so much of just like, oh, my family also turned a blind eye to it. My family kind of had their finger on the button, so to speak. And that made me realize, okay, and now because I, uh, I had hired an amazing, uh, the amazing Kate Bullock to work with me as basically like my like safety consultant and developer on this game. And Kate and I did talk about this. And one of the things that she's really great for is, you know, first of all, you know, like if you want someone to go through your game and say, this part's risky, this part's risky, you know, but not in the sense of poo-pooing all over everything to say like, oh, you shouldn't do this. One of the things Kate's really great at is saying is like, okay, here's the thing. This is a real world issue that can be triggering for people um, and a significant portion of people. And here's how you can responsibly address this so long as you take it very seriously. And so we had that conversation and Kate was like, well, Pandora is nothing but that. It is so systemic institutionalization. It's like you've literally painted it right over the cover already. So if you're going to do it, you got to lean on it responsibly. And that's what I decided to do because then it kind of felt like, a, well, I can't give this up because, A, I just took all these people's money. Mm-hmm. I have to make something. But myself personally, as an artist, I couldn't just, well, I'm going to ignore that for now and then hope no one brings it up. Because like, if you do a Google search for crapper residential schools, that it's going to show up on the first page. It's not like you got to dig and dig and dig. Also, too... I've just mentioned it here on a public podcast. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not that hard to, you know, to find out. And that ended up causing me to go back. The the mechanics of the game never really had to change. That was the kind of amazing part of the whole thing that mechanically the game really worked. I had to rewrite it because going back and taking a look at it, the text I had written apologized and made excuses for why the supers in this game were being treated this way. Well, what else is society supposed to do? These people are dangerous. We've got to do something about it. Our way of life is threatened. What other option do we have? And that was kind of the whole, like, you know, that's what people like me have been doing for decades, not centuries. So I had to go into it and be like, no, this has to be from the supers' point of view. This is happening Mm -hmm. to them, and it's about them. And there are people like them out in the world, but they don't have, quote unquote, the benefit of having a power that will allow them to blow a hole out the wall and escape, you know. So I had to tell the story from the super's point of view. And and then that's that's when things really kind of opened up as far as like, you know, what this could do. But in an odd sense, too, I didn't have to explain as much during the initial playtest of Pandora. It was kind of one of those things where a lot of feedback was, 
man, these academies are terrible. Like, you know, like this place is poorly run, you know, like you might want to think about, you know, why would they allow this to happen to people? Because, you know, you'd have students getting injured, they go to the infirmary, it was just like his arm is broken. It's just like, man, my parents would, my character's parents would totally pull me out of this place. This place is terrible. And then once I realized, it's just like, yes, that's because these are terrible places. They're poorly run. The, the research I've been doing on residential schools in Canada, the conclusion I've started coming up with is that putting Indigenous children in residential schools was important enough for white Canadians to do, but not important enough to do properly, quote unquote, which meant, you know, with the right funding and the right, the correct resources and the right people and looking at it with, you know, actual concerns for the students' needs and welfare and, and mental health and everything like that. It's important enough to, quote unquote, take their their culture away from them, but not important enough to invest the proper resources into it. And so as a result, a terrible idea got even worse and did so much damage and so much harm. Once I was able to just say, yeah, it's kind of like Pandora Academies are a lot like actual institutions around the world right now. It's like, yep. And then everyone could just buy into it. it. It was just in a bizarre way, leaning into that aspect of the game explains the game so much better than like two whole chapters. I, I stripped two whole chapters from the book because I didn't need to have any of that anymore. I didn't need to constantly explain why it was this bad. You just say... You know these places around the world? Yeah, them. That's the Pandora Academy. And every single person can just understand it to a degree as much as we can without having gone through it. But, you know, it, it's 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 been a really interesting experience. Yeah. And I think working on this game kind of helped me start to kind of go through my own kind of truth and reconciliation about my country's past, my family's past and and just so many other things in general kind of and even to like as myself as an artist that i'm oddly grateful that everything happened that the way that it did so yeah it's been an interesting road to this point no it sounds that way but it sounds like like in a way you're saying that that recognizing the things that have happened instead of denying them I guess it's, it's, you know, like they talk about with, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is admitting you have a problem. And, and I, I know that's not what I'm exactly trying to say, but accepting that stuff happened and this is a fact of history as opposed to just kind of ignoring it is the first step to doing better. Yeah, exactly. It, it was also, too, one of the other discussions and well, I mean, once again, like you know, this game wouldn't have uh, existed uh, the way that it does without Kate, because the other conversation was, you know, the point of view, you know, who is this game going to be intended for? And for me, it ended up becoming, well, if this has been kind of like a learning experience for me as uh, a white Canadian, then that's what I want this game to be. I want this to be for other white Canadians to say, okay, let's take your favorite genre and we're going to have lots of fun with it because, you know, it's like the X-Men. Everyone's always wanted to be an X-Men. So that's what we're going to do. 
Uh, except Charles Xavier is a monster and an absolute terrible person who actually hates mutants and is trying to quote unquote cure you. Go. Pandora, for me, my goal has been to use this to allow other people who have not actually had anything like this uh, systemic institutionalization part of their life and give them an opportunity to basically consider it from the point of view of a Super's RPG, um, where it's an, an, an underlayer of it that basically gives you an opportunity to kind of look at a situation similar to that, but still with like that safety rail of just like, well, I'm playing somebody that can uh, blow up a meteorite uh, with, you know, with claws that come out of my hand. So obviously we're not talking about reality here, but we're talking about real issues at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the important things to clarify is that, I, you know, I didn't want this to be something where it was just like, oh, I, I, I'm going to make a game that is about these people who are not me. Pandora is basically written for people like me who are willing to kind of look at that kind of area of their own past because this is something where it's like i said before it's not like up here in canada and i would say also too in the states as well and in a lot of other countries with indigenous populations and colonization mm-hmm. and everything like that it's not like you know we only found out about all this stuff two years ago uh it's been going on for a while we just haven't been paying attention and now it, you know it's time for us to start paying attention. That's that, you know, so that was one of the focuses of, of the game is that's for me who it's written for. Well, that's, I mean, it's nice to hear that you've got a goal in it too. And even though that goal may be not was not what you originally set out for, it's, it's also not just fun and make believe, which not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, it's, it's always, I find things more interesting if there's, more meat to it i guess is the best way to say it yeah so do you want to talk about the mechanics of the game at all because i i know you know the only thing kind of hinted at in the in the listing is you know you use your basic polyhedrals but that's about it and you said that the the (laughs) mechanics aren't all that vital to it but people you know that's one of the things people go to you know at least i do when i get a new game is like oh how do i actually mechanically play it yeah so it, it uses a unique system. There's a couple of little components, obviously, you know, everyone always gets inspiration from, from this or that, but pretty much Pandora has uh, a unique uh, system behind it. The idea being behind it is that there are three different types of actions. So basically your three ability scores, so to speak, are the three types of actions that you would roll dice for. Um, and those are basically considered to be the only points in time when we're interested to see a variety in the result. Uh, so there's conflict, interaction, and protection. And then basically when you create your character, you assign one particular die to that. And then whenever something interesting happens in the story uh, where we don't know how this might go, this could go good, this could go bad, you roll dice. And you always start with a target number of six. Always, always, always. But you have things on your character sheet that can basically lower that target number And primarily, these would be known as values. And these would be very much kind of like aspects that you would see in Fate. You know, very free form. You know, if you want to just write down that your character is strong, you just put strong as a value. My character is strong. Or you could have something where, you know, always wants to do what's right by his neighbors. Okay, there's a value right there. Any value that applies 
and inspires the character into what they're doing reduces the target number. And then, you know, match it and over, it's effective, uh, less than it's ineffective and everything. Where things get wonky is if you're using your power as part of this action. When your character starts, uh, you have what's known as the overpower die, which always starts at a D12 and is added to whatever the other die is. So let's say you have a D8 assigned to your conflict and you're going to use your power to, you know, bash someone through a brick wall. Well, you're going to roll that D8 for your conflict and you're going to add on that D12 for your overpower. If you roll too high, meaning that basically if your target number is a four and you rolled a 12, you've done too much and that triggers havoc which are basically points and you have to then spend those points to create collateral damage and there's a list that's provided on the character sheet and you can spread it out if you want to spend it if you roll three havoc and you want to spend it all in one chunk there's options for that if you want to spread it out you can totally do it but you can only do one option per turn you got to mix it up and sometimes those things will threaten innocent bystanders Sometimes they'll threaten some of the, you know, nearby infrastructure could, you know, cracks in the wall that could cause a building to collapse if someone doesn't do something about it. But you can also use it to cause harm to your own character to say, whoa, under the circumstances, I'm not risking any more damage around here. I'd actually take, I'd rather take damage myself. Um, you could also put complications on yourself. And so basically all the bad things that happen as a result of that power are spent in the form of havoc points. You can still be successful with some havoc. Like two points of ha of havoc, that's okay, that's fine. You're still going to get it done, but there's going to be some collateral damage on the way. If you get three or more havoc, no. Things are too bad. You've done way too much that this will not be effective. So there's room and an expectation that if you get into like an epic battle scene, so throughout the game there are times where you're no longer in a training simulator. You're actually confronting the main villain and their goons on a city street. And the stakes are real. Mm -hmm. So there is an expectation of collateral damage, of buildings collapsing and people all of a sudden trapped in a bus stop and someone's got to go get everything like that. Too much can actually cause your character to gain what's called a manifestation, where basically their power explodes and unlocks another power within you. So imagine if the Human Torch uh, could only shoot fireballs at first. Still looks like Johnny Storm, handsome blonde guy, Chris Evans-like figure, let's just say, for example. And all of a sudden, that power explodes and he develops a new manifestation. And now his body is covered in flame. And it offers like a kind of protection. Cool. However, that kind of manifestation causes a lot of havoc in the process. So it becomes this balancing act where you have to cause some havoc in order to basically learn how to use your power and figure out who the villain is that's behind this plot and then to stop them. But as you play, you can actually learn how to control your character better. You gain ways that you can manipulate the target number more so that you can be a little bit more selective there are things you could do to modify the dice roll. And then once you get to the, kind of like the final battle scene of the game, you have all these options that you have created during play. You've established ways that your character has learned to quote unquote, focus your mind, calm your emotions and all that other kind of stuff. 
you've actually learned how to do that and you have ways that you can then say, oh, that's going to be bad. No, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to recall that time when I accidentally injured Angela and how that made my character feel. I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm increasing my target number so it reduces the havoc I cause. You gain more control. You never can control what the die result is, but you can control what it does in the story as time goes on. But at first, you got to get messy. Okay, this sounds pretty neat. Now, that does bring a question, though. Like, what what kind of story window is this game designed for? Is this designed for, like, it sounds like uh, mid-length campaigns, you know, half-dozen sessions or so? Or is that, is it kind of open to go longer or one-shots or... It's one shots are definitely tricky. I, I have done a one shot before. Actually, I did it for an AP on uh, the Rook and Rasp uh, channel on Twitch. Heavily modified. For the most part, yeah, I, I look at this as being kind of like a six or more session at least. And that's even then assuming that you use the mechanics exactly as written. Because there's uh, a scene mechanic, so to speak. The game is divided into three acts. At the start of each act, each player, including the GM rolls a d6 to determine how many points they have to spend on scenes. And that's, this is one of the ways that makes it a writer table game. Everyone has an opportunity to contribute, you know, to, oh, you know what, for this story, I want to look at my character's history. Like, what sent them here? You know, like, what was the moment their power went out of control? I'm going to spend a point so we can have that scene. And so if you were to take that and use it, you know, literally as written, you're basically kind of letting the game inform you of how long the story is going to be. If everyone rolls a lot of scene points for Act 2, it's like, okay, we got a lot of material to cover this act. Uh, and if Act 3, it's just like, oh, okay, we're just doing a few scenes, and uh, okay, you guys don't have long until the villain's going to basically try and steal the Statue of Liberty. So we gotta, you guys got to find a way to wrap this up and, and get tight control of your powers and get your new costumes knit. You can do that if you want to, but at the same time, too, it's not a requirement uh, if you want to basically set it where it's like, okay, each of us are going to have two scenes, and once we're done that, then we're going to have a big fight, and then we'll move on to Act 3. But for me, the way to experience it is uh, I like to look at it as at least six sessions, preferably two sessions per act, and then at the end of each act, there's a, there's a battle scene where the villain and their goons make a move. Somebody's up to something, real-world stakes and everything like that. Yeah, it's there. It's not meant as, like, a short game. Uh, and, and, you know, that I, I wondered about that for the longest time. I tried to find a way of just, like, that's asking a lot, especially, too, it's so crowded. Like, we were just talking about, like, all these amazing games and everything out there, and I'm just like, hey, I've got a game. Would you guys mind running this for the next six months? That would be great. Thank you. <laughs> but it's kind of one of those things. It kind of leans into the topic once again, you know, kind of like the concept of the game informed my decision. It was basically like, you know what? Yeah, it's not like, for example, people went to residential schools and it was like, you just got to ride this out for 60 days and then you're done. It's like, nope, this could be years. And even then in this, there's no guarantee that you're your super is going to even graduate. They're just going to, ah, we figured out who was trying to steal the Statue of Liberty. Problem solved. I'll go back to my room now. You know, so it, for me, that it, it's more of a campaign style game than it is a, a, a short game, you know, so it is a bit of mm -hmm. investment, but 
my opinion is incredibly biased, but it it's worth it because you put that kind of investment. You really get a chance to see character grow into someone who doesn't look like how they started, you know? Like, but the characters that you get at the end of Pandora, everything on the sheet, you see kind of like the scars, like the physical, the physical and the emotional scars that they gained over the course of this story. And that, to me, makes it very rewarding, you know, especially too mm-hmm. when you think back to the first scene when your character used their power and was just like, yeah, I sent Jesse to the hospital. Whoa, that was that was rough. And then you're in the final battle scene and you actually feel like you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it makes it very rewarding for me. And so that's that's how the game is is designed. And I just embrace it now. Yeah, well, no, it, it sounds like very much the, the, the core of the game is the growth of the characters as opposed to the stuff they do actually do, if that makes sense. You know, like the, the story of the game is, is about the characters growing and, and learning and not that they stop the Statue of Liberty from getting stolen. And I think some games yeah. have that kind of hidden. Like, I don't know how, are you familiar with uh, Delta Green from Arc Dream? I have heard a lot about Delta Green. That's another that's another one that the gaming and BS crew used to mention all the time. Now that I have this internet thing kind of up and running now, and I can actually talk to people from my own home, I used to have to drive for half an hour to get decent Wi-Fi before. Now that I know I don't have to do that and be, you know, camped out in the backseat of my car and stealing someone's Wi-Fi, <laughs> I, that's kind of like a, I've heard you guys talk about all these games, throw them at me, you know? <laughs> So yeah, Delta Green is definitely on the list. Okay, well, <clears throat> side note, they have a free quick start, or well, it's pay what you want, not technically free, called Need to Know. It is, in my opinion, one of the best quick starts out there. Definitely worth a read. But to get to my point here, because I, I love the game, but to me, there's one mechanic in that game that to me is the core story of the game and i don't think a lot of people get it there's a what they call a bonds mechanic which is you have valued values that are assigned to your relationships with people it can be other players but it's usually like you know your family your 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 off care off camera npcs you know like your family your ex-wife whatever but to mitigate sanity loss you can take damage to those bonds. And so to me, one of the cool concepts of that game is that through that bonds mechanic, you could witness the toll that, that fighting all this mythos horror, eldritch horror stuff takes on these individuals, not in terms of actual scars, but in the toll it takes on their psyche and their life. Yeah. And I just think that that's like this hidden gem of a mechanic in a way yeah but it, it sounds like you've almost taken that and turned it the other way kind of yeah and it said yeah like with delta green from how you're describing it it's you know almost kind of like the 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 side story you know in between the missions and everything like that you know come back home and find out uh my wife's just filed for divorce crap you know like this job's cost me my marriage kind of thing yeah whereas yeah with with pandora it's it's definitely way more it's not even so much that that aspect is kind of, you know, like worn on your sleeve. It's almost like it's tattooed right on your wrist. It's very out there. It's very obvious. And I, and I think in some cases, because a lot of that is you're playing as characters who have basically been taken away from everything. You know, they're, they're not allowed to go home. 
until they learn to control this power. And I, I've even seen it where I've had, I had one player actually, I was having to do a lot of play by post for a while when I was doing the play testing. And I had one player reach out to me privately and say, you know, uh, you know, th this character, I can, I'm, I'm getting too much bleed, you know, and I never got too much detail as to why I didn't need it. But it was something about that kind of loneliness and that separation during the pandemic, now that I think about it, was was the hard part. But at the same time, too, I keep hearing messages from that player and just be like, I really enjoyed my experience. But it was something where I knew I couldn't go much further. But at the same time, too, they really appreciated being able to experience that. Like, they felt like they walked away with kind of like, one of the goals of the game for me, which is that a sense of understanding of what it might be like. And yeah, that is kind of one of the things, you know, because of the kind of characters that are being played where they're, they're not in as much control over their lives as they used to be. And that's the goal is to kind of get back to it. Um, mm -hmm. And there, there is, yeah. So, and, and once again, that was another one of those aspects where that was not going to be a major part of the game, but it just seems to work so much better with it in there that, uh, yeah, it was kind of like, a, all right, let's, let's roll right into this. Let's cover ourselves in mud and let's, let's get dirty. Well, I think like you said, though, you know, you kind of listened to it and, and went where the game wanted to go instead of trying to force it down a road. And I mean, it sounds like, like I, I'm definitely going to have to try and get this on a table somewhere just because it, it sounds too interesting not to. And the, okay. the concepts behind it are thought provoking enough that it, it makes me really want to play it. Cool. Yeah. It's, um, oh man. So weird. There's a game that I did before I started working on Pandora and I can't talk about it too much because there's, so the only thing I can mention is that I worked on a game uh, called The Tower. I kickstarted it. It's only available to those particular backers. And even then, they don't get to take a look at it uh, until I'm dead. It's in my will that basically, when I'm gone, my lawyer will send off an email that will have this attached and, you know, and everything like that. So I can't get into the specifics. But it was a very, very focused and very, very dark game. It's not even, I wouldn't even call it a game. I called it a simulation because I didn't want there to be any implication that is like, this could be fun. It doesn't matter your definition of fun. I don't want this to be fun. You're going through this to experience what it's like in an incredibly terrible situation for these people to get a sense of empathy for something that you might not have thought about before. And when the time came to really lean heavy uh, in Pandora, I felt very comfortable doing so because I had some experience doing it before. But your point there, just by like, you know, I went in that direction because that's where the game kind of took me. It's like in this weird way, that's like my GMing style. I don't like to tell the players, well, this is what's going to happen to you next. It's more of like, a, I'm there to react to what they're giving me. I have an idea of what's going to happen if they don't do anything about this particular issue or problem or character or something like that. But otherwise, my job as the GM for me, how I enjoy playing it, is to react to what the game gives me as another player at the table. 
And so I guess in that sense, that's what happens with my design work too. I'll have a concept sometimes of just for the mechanic of just like, Ooh, that's a different way to roll dice, you know, and other times with a very specific subject matter or theme or genre in mind. And then I just kind of, it goes where it takes me. And if it gets to the point where it's like, nope, this sucks. I don't like this direction anymore. Then I stop working on it or put it to the side and potentially come back to it later. But yeah, it's it's just kind of one of those things where, once again, trying to do it any other way, the entire premise of the game didn't work. It would break the suspension of disbelief just wasn't there for people because you basically, you're introducing a game that basically says, how would you like to start at level negative 10? You've got a lot more learning to do <laughs> until you can get to even some level of competency. And if you can get someone to say, yeah, sign me up for that. I'd love to blow stuff up by accident for the first act or two. Then you might as well just kind of go all the way with it. Because if they're already going to say yes to that, they're already going to start, you know, there's a good chance they're going to say yes to a lot of this other kind of stuff. One of the things that uh, we had talked about, um, there had been some concern that a lot of the characters that were referenced or, or mentioned as kind of like ideas and concepts all had this backstory where they killed or seriously injured somebody with their power. And there was some concern about that. But it was one of those things where every single player put that aspect into their character. And I think because there are so many references in like the X-Men universe, there's so many tragic mutants in the X-Universe that... You know, for so many people, that was like, nope, this is part of it, you know. And so that's why we kept it, because players kept doing it over and over again. And it and it would fit for this particular idea of overpowered supers who can't control their powers. So, it, you know, if once again, it's just another one of those things where it's like, I, I can't imagine any other way of not doing it now because it everyone just kept bringing this kind of stuff to the table. Mm-hmm. Wow. There's yeah. so much to unpack here. I mean, we could talk about this for hours. But um, that's why my wife wanted me to come on a podcast. She's tired of listening to me talk about it. <laughs> well, it sounds like, though, it, it really like it's going to grab hold and live in your brain. Oh, man. So, um, boy, is there any more you want to touch on about Pandora Total Destruction that we haven't covered before we move on to a couple other things? No, I think I think we covered like the the big ones and then some. So no, I'm good actually. All right. Well, so here here comes the really really fun part of the show, and this is where you get to tell everyone where they can find you and all your cool stuff and any other stuff that you want to promote and all that fun stuff. Oh yeah, that's right. That's part of it too. Yeah, okay. the self promo well, stuff. The yeah, the self promo stuff. So in general. The only way that I recommend uh, is uh, my uh, company website, brokenrulergames.net. That's where I have all my stuff listed as, as well again. When it comes to how to reach me and stuff like this, first of all, just do a search for my name. I guarantee no one else is using it. It's pretty exclusive. <laughs> um, and no, I did not change it just so I could have the fame. Um, so yeah, uh, but otherwise it's one of those things I have become incredibly anti-social media. I'm on Facebook. Um, and there's a good chance, you know, like, you know, if you, if you want to friend me on there and, you know, there's a good chance that I'll, I'll friend you back and everything like that. But like I, I'm on Twitter, 
but I don't use it. I have it available so I can check messages in case someone reaches out to me from there. So yeah, brokenrulergames.net. Um, that's where you can find my stuff. And then if we happen to, you know, kind of meet up online from there, it was meant to be. It was fortuitous. You know what? That's what it is. We'll let karma decide if we're ever going to meet. How about that? All right. There we go. All right. Well, with all that, I think it's it's time that we play uh, another round of the game that, uh, well, led us to being introduced. And that would be Game of the Week. Game of the Week. Game of the Week. So uh, since that's how you found us, you understand more or less how the game's played. Uh, would you like me to go first or would you like to go first? Or uh, how would you like to do this? Let you go ahead. Okay. So my game of the week this week is a game that um, I stumbled across. It's a couple of years old, but it's a game called Carbine Jungle, and that's Carbine with a Y. It's from a company called NorCal Mythos Entertainment. And it, well, looking at the art, it looks like Star Wars meets Rifts meets the MCU. You know, kind of a little bit of a... a everything together mashup, but kind of like in that fun sci-fi way, you know, it's just a thousand years in the distant future, combines elements of fantasy, sci-fi, noir, and horror into a rich gaming experience built on something they're calling the Triforge engine with three distinct styles of gameplay, you know? So it, it, I don't know. The art looked cool. The name looked cool. You know, it's yeah. Sci-fi cataclysm, using all the tropes but i don't know it just looks looks fun great big city is the center of the known galaxy lots of customization options so yeah that's mine this week it's it's, it's called carbine jungle c-a-r-b-y-n-e jungle cool uh mine is i think in a sense i might actually be cheating here because technically uh my company's name is on the back broken ruler games but i did not make this i did the layout on it mm-hmm. and uh i in a sense kind of helped co-produce it but this is basically um the game is called survival of the able uh it's actually coming out on it's not the when we're recording this it's not exact it's not available yet but it is uh, going to be releasing later this week on drive through rpg um it's actually uh from my friend jacob wood uh from accessible games uh, survival of the able it's about uh, people with disabilities uh, during the uh, middle ages in europe um, who have to survive a zombie apocalypse it's uh, mm-hmm. a, a kind of a customized that they made yeah and it's kind of a mix of, of fudge and fate and it's a real the premise when i first found out about this um and, and jacob uh, was first uh, trying to kickstart it and everything like that the premise alone just really got me because you're playing people who are very much overlooked in the idea of any kind of survival game, let alone survival. Uh, and then you put it in the Middle Ages where it's just like there's no considerations are given to people with disabilities at the time. And yet they're the they're the main characters. They're the heroes of the story. Uh, and they're the ones who are actually going to get somewhere and survive while able-bodied people are getting slaughtered around them. Um, and it, it's the, the, the way that everything is done and set up and the way that disabilities are handled in the game is that instead of it being, it's like, you're blind, you can't see nothing. You have no sight stats whatsoever. 
it can be done in varying degrees. If you want to have it where all you see, quote unquote, is black, you can have that. But if you want to have it where things are blurry and it's it's hard for you to read or make out faces, mechanically things are set that way. It really handles a variety of disabilities and disability levels. If you want it to be someone that has zero use of their legs or someone that is just very wobbly and needs you know, the use of canes to get around or something like that. And then you basically have these characters who are trying to survive a zombie apocalypse, you know, like where they themselves could be bitten and turned into a zombie. So it's, um, I have played it and uh, like some of the early play tests and, and everything like that. And it's a really cool game. And I'm really glad that we were able to get this out there because it's uh, just, just for me as someone who used to love anything that was zombie related and then got really tired of it really quick. It was nice to see something that was just like, ooh, that will get me back into it again. There's an interesting twist on the genre right there. Mm -hmm. Well, like we were talking about before, that kind of what if, you know, and and take it to its extension. Now, that sounds sounds really, really interesting for lack of a, a, I know I've said that a lot tonight, but it does, you know, it's, it's, it's thought provoking. And I'm sure, you know, it sounds like care was taken to handle things responsibly not just you know make dark comedy out of it all or anything like that yeah well and that's the thing like jacob's company is accessible games and jacob himself is a person with a disability he is blind and so as a result this is very important for him to not only have representation in the games that he makes but also too for accessibility to be a part of how the game is played so like the fact that it uses Fate and Fudge dice, which are considered by many to be some of the most accessible dice in the industry. Um, even to the way that we did the layout for it, there are options in how you can get it. So, you know, you can get it where it's got like this graphic font, very gothic looking and everything like that. Uh, lots of red splashed all over the place. But then we've also got black and white versions available. We've got other versions with an easy to read font. Uh, for people that have, you know, varying forms of print disability. We've even got ones that are written in a very dyslexia-friendly font. Um, All the PDFs are fully tagged, screen-readable, and everything like that. The way I'm starting to talk about it, and and, uh, I'm more than happy to have someone correct me on this, because then that means there's competition for the title, I'm calling Survival of the Able the most accessible tabletop RPG in the world. And I hope someone proves me wrong if not now then soon well that's cool though i you know i like that i like you know even though what do you want to say it doesn't doesn't affect me personally it's it's still a good thing you know it's it's more inclusive it's and and that's the thing right the only thing you need to play ttrpgs is an imagination so why shouldn't they be accessible to everybody you know i mean yes it's have fun together and and the more you know, not that you need huge groups, but the more people you include, the more the more places your game can go because you know different people think differently. And and I mean that's to me, like I said, that's that's the beauty of this hobby is that it's it's not constrained. If if you don't let it be constrained, it's not. I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, even too like the game that basically says. You know, like, you know, if whenever you hear someone poo-pooing in the idea of fantasy warrior in a wheelchair, 
just be like, okay, well, here's a game where a character in a wheelchair could have a huge advantage over anyone else. It's like, oh no, the zombies are chasing us. Everyone hop onto the back of my chair. Let's go down this hill while everyone who's running on legs gets eaten by the zombies, you know? So if anything, that this is a game that basically it takes some of like the, the, the tropes and everything and twists it on its head because it's a really interesting way to look at, okay, well, normally I would just swing my stick and I would hit it across the face or stab it in the brain or something like that. But how am I going to do that if I can't see where it is? I can hear its footsteps on the ground. And then you incorporate that into your descriptions. It, it just gives you a really great way to think outside the box and try something different and get a better understanding. I mean, it's role-playing. You're getting a better understanding of what a world is like from this other character's point of view. It's just that in this game, the character you're playing is a person with a disability. And it can do so much to open your eyes as to, oh, I never thought about these things before. Yeah, and then, like, just the way my head goes with this is, so now you, you've thought about these different ways that you describe things or whatever. You can take that to the next time you play some other game and enhance that experience because of this thing you learned playing this other game and it all builds yeah. and you know, like, like that's the thing is like, if you, how do I want to say this? If you keep playing the same game with the same people, it's probably going to get boring because you're the same people. Yeah. But if you play different games, it makes your head go different directions. You play with different people, you know, like, look, I, I, I miss some of the people I used to game with, you know, we moved apart, et cetera. But it's always fun when you get to, you know, make new friends and, and play with new people too. So it's the yeah. one of the wonders yeah, of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> As you're recently discovering, so to speak. <laughs> I was just going to say yes. And I look forward to finally being a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, boy, I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think uh, your game is really really interesting and and takes a look at some things you know that like you said you know may help people think about things differently which is always a good thing any more final thoughts before we uh wrap things up yeah if anything that i've talked about tonight uh doesn't seem like it's uh you know up your alley i do have another one called kill shot where you play assassins who kill people for money so there is a little bit of, you know, things on the other side of the coin as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all deep thinkers. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and the other one that, uh, well, since I've had you on, I can't really use it for a game of the week, but High Plains, what is it, High Plains Samurai? Is that your other one? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. That sounds incredibly fun. So, uh you know what? You're just gonna you're gonna have to have me on another time to talk about that one. Actually, that's that. It seems like the only fair thing to do. If if Egg Embry gets to come on twice, I think it's only fair that I try and beat his record. Okay. Well, you got a ways to go before you beat Hooli, but oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, we could definitely have you come back and talk about any of your other games or whatever. This one just like it felt like it kind of fit to kick off, you know, October and and being a little bit more of a grim style game and everything. But yeah, we'd love to have you come back and, and, and talk more game and fun stuff. Plus your, your kind of design approach seems really, really cool. And that, like you said, you try not to be constrained by any one particular thing and, and kind of experience it as you create it, which I think is, sounds really fun. Well, good. Yeah. It's, it's this, this has been fun being on here. I appreciate this. Thank you for taking the time to join us. 
kind of a, a quick turnaround because it was only what, like a week or two ago, you emailed me initially and here we are. But uh, I guess with that, you know, like I said, thank you for taking the time to, to join us and talk with us. And uh, for everybody out there listening, you know, come join the discord. You know, we, we talk, we, we've of course Todd into joining the discord now, though he could run away and leave if he wants to, but you can talk with us about the show, about games, about whatever, all that fun stuff. Uh, we have a Patreon with some small stuff. If you think we're really, really good and, and think we deserve money for the nonsense we put out on the air, uh, we'll gladly take it. I don't really understand why, but anyhow, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff's uh, again, linked in the show notes. And with that, uh, well, I guess, you know, be kind to each other. Get out there and play some RPGs. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and RPGs. Find us on Facebook at Me and Steve RPG Podcast. On Discord at Me and Steve RPGs. And as always, all of these links are in the show notes. Thank you and be kind to one another. for the cigar cigar 20 bucks dog you gotta go down the street to the store and buy that